The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. weekend, and especially if you're a guest with us, a few of our folks have gone away, and we thank you for coming, and I've already met some of our guests, and if you see anyone, you don't know their first and last name, be sure and speak to them and welcome them. Open your Bible, if you will, to the last chapter of the little three-chapter book of Second Thessalonians. You're probably not too familiar with this book in the Bible, but I think there's some very relevant words to this particular weekend. And before we read the passage that I've listed for you, let me share with you somewhat confessionally. For many, many years as a preacher, I saw no relationship between Labor Day weekend and the church and Bible preaching. And so uh, we just enjoyed the day off and uh, went on. And then just a while back, it occurred to me that the Bible certainly must say something to us about that matter of our lives in which we spend at least a third of our adult life doing, namely working. And so I began to study the scripture and I was intrigued by what I find and I'm simply sharing with you the overflow this morning. It was in 1884, 1882, that the very first Labor Day celebration occurred here in America. It happened, of course, in New York City. And the union workers there had a march through the city and climaxed at a certain park. And then 12 years later, 1894, Grover Cleveland signed the document that made it a national holiday. And so for the last 120 years, this weekend has been recognized as Labor Day in which we recognize the working force in the United States of America, which many of you are a part of. Now, when you look at the book of Second Thessalonians, keep this in mind. Most Bible scholars feel that First and Second Thessalonians were among the first, if not the first books chronologically in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote. Already this early, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ had become a paramount problem. And here's what was happening. In Thessalonica, some people had taken this wonderful Bible truth that one day Jesus is coming again and had perverted it. They had come to the conclusion that he was going to come in their lifetime. And so they folded their arms, they quit their jobs, they quit work, and they were waiting for the Lord to come. As spiritual as that may sound, it was utter stupidity. Hear me carefully. The Bible says no one, N-O-O-N-E, say it with me. One more time. One more time. 
Now, don't you forget that. You forget this sermon. Don't forget Noah. No one knows when Jesus is coming again. Now, if we can get that in our mind, we can save ourselves from a lot of trouble. I believe he's coming. I know he's coming. I'm looking for him to come, but no one knows when. But they had the idiotic idea he was coming back in their lifetime. So they just quit work. Well, you know, for a week or two, neighbors took care of them. Uh, two or three weeks, they fed them and helped them. But finally, they began to complain. They were having these freeloaders, is what we would call them, not working, claiming to be spiritual, looking for Jesus to come. And finally, the people complained to Paul. Paul had a simple answer for them. We'll read it here in just a second. You may think it sounds unchristian, but I want to tell you it's biblical. Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. There's nothing unchristian about that. If you don't work, you don't eat. Now, this is not to say we ought not to be compassionate and caring. Some people can't work today. I want to do more for them. But some people are lazy, indolent, and irresponsible and think if they'll be lazy long enough, the world's going to take care of them. They ought not to have any help whatsoever. And you heard it in church by a Christian preacher right out of the Bible. Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. You say, where do you get that preacher? You look with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, <coughs> beginning in verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away. By the way, read in here when we read this, one word occurs three times. You look for it, and I'll point it out to you when we get through. I command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you've received from us. Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Now, he said, goes on to say, we did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a M-O-D-E-L, a model, a pattern for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. Now, here it is. Verse 10, 2 Thessalonians 3. We gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work will not eat. You may want to underline that in your Bible to make sure you don't forget where it is. The one who does not work, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, but they are busy bodies. You know the Bible talks about busy bodies? You know, if you don't stay busy doing the right thing, you can easily do the wrong thing. And that's what they were doing. They were not working. They were busy bodies. Such people, we command you and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right 
are what is good. It has been my observation that most of the unhappiness in our world, and there are many unhappy people, is rooted in one of three things. One, a not, a right, a not having a right relationship with God, spiritual problem. Second, not being related, rightly related to our families, a marital or a family problem. And third, not being rightly related to our work. That is a vocational problem. Most people who are unhappy today will either find it <clears throat> in a wrong relation with God, a wrong relationship with our families, or a wrong relationship to work. Now, the truth of the matter is, most of us should do some kind of work. That's what the Bible teaches, that we were created to work. Now, hear me carefully. Having to work is not the result of the curse of the fall. I've heard some people teach that. That is not biblical, that if Adam and Eve had never fallen, we'd never have to work. That's not what the Bible says. The curse of the fall was not we had to work, because we got tired when we worked. Wouldn't you like to work and work and work and never get tired, never get weary? That would, that's, that would be the ideal that God made us. He didn't make us to do nothing. He said to Adam and Eve, toil the garden. Take care of it. Exodus chapter 20. Six days shall you L-A-B-O-R. Said out loud. Labor. That is six days of your labor. Now remember the seventh day to keep it holy. So the Bible teaches us not that work was the result of the curse, but fatigue, exhaustion, weariness as a result of the fall. If we didn't have that, if man had never fallen, man would never get tired when we work. The tragic truth is that we are told that approximately half of the people in America today, to be exact, 52% are unhappy in their work. I have no idea of knowing where you would fall in that. Some of you may be extremely happy. I hope you are. But right after the service this morning at 8 o'clock, I stood right here and listened and prayed with one of our dear friends, a member of our church. They're frustrated with their work, and they heard this sermon, and they said, I appreciate it. It spoke to my heart. I am miserable in my work. And that person is typical, I'm afraid, fearful, of many in our world today. And I think the Bible has something to say to us so. What I want to say is that certainly if anyone is unhappy in their work, God wants us to be happy in our work. And I think we find some antidotes to the unhappiness if we can look at the Scripture. And let me mention just three things to you quickly this morning that I think will help us be happy in our work. Number one, discover the right job. Well, you say, Brother Carter, that's mighty nice of you to say that. Just pray tell, how do you think you're going to go about doing that? Just look at the bona ads and find the one that pays the most money? Well, not necessarily. Some people are making a lot of money today, and they're miserable. You know what I'm talking about. We see evidences of it all the time. No, I'm not suggesting you go to the bona ads and find the one that pays the most money. But if you're going to discover the right job, three things I think are 
absolutely imperative. Number one, God's will for us. Here's some principles you can go to the bank with. You can rest assured. They're unerring Bible principles. One is God created you. God made you just like you are. God in love and grace and mercy is the God of all creation. And so God created me. Secondly, God loves me and he loves you. And he has saved or wants to save you. If you're not a Christian today, I want to say to you on Labor Day weekend, God loves you, Christ died for you, and God wants to give you the gift of eternal life on this last day of August 2014. God created us, God loves us, but then the point of this sermon is the same God who created us and who loves us has a purpose, has a plan for you. God is a God of purpose and design. When God made you and you were born years ago, whatever that time may have been, God knew before you were ever born what he wanted you to do. You ever thought about that? And thereby, as a God of purpose and design, God endowed you with certain abilities to do what he wanted you to do. And so what you need to do is to understand (coughs) your abilities, your strengths, we're going to talk about in just a moment. You didn't get them at Walmart. God gave them to you. You know, there's certain things you're good at and certain things you're not so good at. Some of you are real good at math. Some of you can't add two plus two. But some of you are very creative and others of us never had a creative thought. Where did that come from? God made us that way. Now, that leads me to the second thing. Not only discover God's will, but also God's, look at your, for your God-given abilities. That is, your aptitude. God always, hear me, God always, hear me, God always gives us the abilities, the tools, or the aptitude to do his work. I sometimes say to people, God's will for you and me is not only spiritual, it's sensible. God doesn't put square pegs in round holes. God is not going to lead you and me to do something that we can't do. God's never going to tell us to do something we cannot do. So look for your own aptitude, your own ability, the things you're the best at. If I could put it in simple language, you would understand Follow your passion. There are certain things that you're good at. And most of the time, we're happiest doing the things we're good at. Some of you ladies are really good at cooking. Woo, we're grateful. Some of you ladies said, if I don't ever have to go in the kitchen again the rest of my life, I could go to heaven happy. You know what? God made you that way. You know, you have your talents and skills and something else. I remember so well in my own father's life. My dad worked nearly 50 years with a telephone company. He never, ever went to medical school. Now you say, what's that got to do with it? Well, my dad was sitting in a doctor's office one day, not as a patient. He was there with my mother, and my mother had an infected finger. It got worse and worse, and finally she had to go to the doctor, and he operated on it. 
And after mother was recovering, the doctor had my dad in the waiting room and he said to Mr. Carter, I had to do about a three inch incision and then I had to get all that infection out. I had to cut away a good bit of the skin and they said, then I had to scrape the bone. And about that time, dad fell out on the floor. He, he was not made to be a nurse or a doctor or to see blood. Now, some of you say, I understand just how I feel. Some of you said, that's the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. God didn't make my dad to be a doctor. He made him to be a wonderful telephone company employee for nearly 50 years. Now, what am I saying in that simple illustration? Find the things that's your passion, the things that you're the best at, and most of the time, we do the best work in the things that we are best at and minimize what we're not so good at. So, how do we be happy in our work? We've got to discover the right job. First of all, God's will. Secondly, God-given abilities. And thirdly, God, godly motives. That is that your motive for work is right. And the motive is not necessarily the one where you can make the most amount of money. I know people today whose names I could give you, they're making many, many dollars, but they're very unhappy in their work. It's not the matter. You know, I don't have to tell you as intelligent as you are, money doesn't buy you happiness. Money cannot make you happy. And so if you're unhappy in your work, more dollars is not going to therefore automatically equate with happiness. You say, well, preacher, I just like to try it sometime. Well, take my word for it. It just is never going to work that way. But on the contrary, find the job that brings out the best in you and me, the things that we do the best and that brings out the best in us. And secondly, that can make the greatest contribution to others so that it's not just gimme, 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 or just working for a paycheck or working for certain things that you just know you want also to be able to feel like. When you finish your life, you've spent your life doing something that meant something to somebody else, whatever that something was. And that means you don't have to be a preacher or a missionary or a dentist or a doctor. There are many kinds of jobs that we can do that are bringing out the best in us and make the greatest contribution to others. Now, quickly, if I'm going to discover the right job, I want to look at God's will, I want to look at God-given abilities, and I also want to have godly motives. That is, that I am trying to do what I do for the right reason. Now, quickly, beyond discovering the right job, if I'm going to be happy in work, I also need to demonstrate the right attitude. You know what I'm talking about? I have met some people, I never saw them happy. You know what I'm talking about? They grumble and gripe about everything. If they don't have something to gripe about today, they'll tell you how bad yesterday was. They're just born in the kickative mood. They, they, there's something wrong with everything. Their attitude is so sour, so rotten. Now, some of you are there here this morning. You may be sitting there growling at me. Let me tell you, when you start talking to us about it, 
we talk about you behind your back and what a jackass you are. And you heard that in church. Am I right? Hold up. No, no, you don't have to. I'm telling you, we don't like it. So don't bother us with it. If you're miserable with the world and wallow in your own misery, don't dump all that stuff on us. I'm joking a little bit to make the point. We have a control of our attitude. I can't control what happens to me, but I can control how I respond to it. And then what I'm getting at here is if you want to be happy in your work, you've got to develop a right attitude. Now the Thessalonians had the, many of them, not all of them, but many of them had the wrong attitude towards work. And Paul corrected this and apparently it settled it. Why? Not one other time in the whole New Testament in 1 Thessalonians and 2 with the first books Paul wrote, no other epistle even mentions it. So apparently when he said, if you don't work, you don't eat. That settled it, and people said, well, I guess if I'm going to eat, I'm going to have to go back to work and let Jesus take care of when he's coming. So they had the wrong attitude towards work, and Paul corrected this. Their attitude was wrong, and your attitude is just as important as your aptitude. That is, your abilities are important. We can't do something that we can't do. But then our attitude towards that is so vitally important. You say, what do you mean, Charles? First of all, a grateful attitude. You know, I hope when you go to work Tuesday morning that you will thank God for the ability to work. Why? For a number of reasons. There are some people in Shelby County this morning. They'd gladly go to work today, tomorrow, next day. They can't. They're physically disabled. They're handicapped. For whatever reason, physically, mentally, emotionally, they're incapable of working. They would if they could, but they can't. So be grateful that you have a healthy mind and a healthy body. You can go to sleep at night, you can get up in the morning, and you can get in your car, and you can drive or walk to work, and you can be there. A grateful attitude so that you see work as an opportunity, not just as a necessity, an opportunity to make, to do something, to make something worthwhile, to contribute to the society in which we live. I heard recently about a tourist that was out in the Midwest and came on an Indian reservation. There was an Indian chief sitting out in front of a wigwam and the tourist was making conversation. He said, well, he said, uh, uh, where do you work? And the chief said, me not work. And the tourist said, oh, well, why don't you get you a job? The chief said, why? Well, he said, so you can make some money and buy some things. The chief said, why? And the tourist was exasperated. He said, well, so you can save up your money and when you get old, you won't have to work. She said, me not work now. <laughs> now. That's the attitude of some people. Work is a necessity. And if they can get out of it, they will get out of it. That's a tragedy. And we see much of that in our American society today. People getting, doing the least amount of work for the most amount of pay they can get and thereby the work incentive, the work ethic to do the best you can with everything you do is gradually ebbing away. And that's tragic. And the Bible says something about that. 
Whatever you do, the Bible says, do it heartily as unto the Lord. So, a grateful attitude that work is, not, is an opportunity, not a necessity. But then that we have a purposeful attitude. I mean, think about it. Why are you going to work if you've still got a job? Why, why do you go to work? You know what I'm talking about? Think about that sometime. Why do you do what you're doing beside the paycheck? A while back, a large cathedral was being built in London, and the newspaper reporter decided to do a survey. And he talked to three different workmen there, and he asked each one of them the same question. He said, uh, what are you doing? The first one said, I'm making $25 an hour. The second one said, I'm cutting stone. The third one said, I'm helping build the largest cathedral this town has ever seen. One's making a paycheck, one's doing a job, or one's helping build a giant cathedral where people can come and worship and praise God. What's the difference? It's the attitude. Why am I doing what I'm doing? A grateful attitude. Beyond that, that we also manifest not just a grateful attitude, but a, a purposeful attitude that I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And beyond that, that we have a fruitful attitude. That is, that I want to do something that will be productive. I want to do something that will help somebody else. I want to do something that will make a contribution to the world in which we live. So we have a fruitful attitude towards what we're doing. So how do I find the right job? I mean, how do I get happy in my work? Number one, find the right job. Discover the right job. Number two, demonstrate the right attitude. And you can do it. You cannot control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. Remember, you can develop a fruitful attitude by having a, a sense of justifiable pride in everything that you do. I hope as a Christian you recognize a Christian ought to do their best at everything they do for the glory of God. Boys and girls, that means if you can make A's in school, you ought not to make C's. Mom and Daddy didn't tell me to say that. God did. If C's is the best you can do, that's fine. If B's is the best we can do, that's fine. But if I'm capable of making A's, I ought to make A's. And it says on the job, the Christian ought to be the hardest working laborer on the job force and do the best job of anybody there because they're working to please God. Most of the time, people who have things given to them without working for them seldom know how to appreciate or enjoy. You know what I'm talking about? I could give you the names of dear friends of mine across the years who just ended up. A position was given, money was given, things were given, and today those people have little or no incentive for work. I know sometimes you may look at them and say, oh, if I could just be like that. No, seldom do we appreciate anything that we have 
that we haven't worked for. That's not to minimize. Sometimes people do give us things, and we're grateful for it. But by and large, most of what we have, we work for. And I'm grateful God has given us that ability to do it. One last thing. How to be happy in your work. Number one, discover the right job. Number two, demonstrate the right attitude. But number three, and very important, don't miss it. Develop the right balance. I've listed for you here three words that I want you to keep in your mind. I-D-L-E, that's the word that was used three times in our text. If you have the King James, it's disorderly. But if you've got the NIV, it was I-D-L-E. It means disorderly, it means doing nothing. It's being idle. I-D-O-L and I-D-E-A-L. And if, I, if you can keep those three words in your mind, they may help us to develop the right balance. Some people are idle, I-D-L-E. They're lazy. Some people make their work I-D-O-L. They make their work their God. Some, hopefully, and I hope this, our time of worship this morning will enable you to have the ideal that you know exactly how to balance. You say, what are you talking about balancing, preacher? Balancing three things. Number one, balancing leisure and work. All of us need some time off. I hope most of you can be off tomorrow. And whatever you do with it, it's your business, but everybody needs a break every once in a while. I had a dear preacher friend who was at one time pastor of the largest Southern Baptist Church east of the Mississippi River, Dr. R.G. Lee. And he used to pride himself on saying, I never take a vacation. His wife wanted to go on a vacation. I don't take a vacation. He called her Lady Lee. He said, I never take a vacation. One day he said that to her. She said, he said, the devil never does. And she said, yeah, that may be the reason he's as mean as he is. <laughs> you remember that. People who don't know how to rest, who don't know how to have a break, who don't know how to enjoy leisure, time off. They're miserable at times. They're mean. Now what I'm saying is a balance between leisure and work. It's wonderful to have leisure, to have a hobby, to have an avocation, whatever yours may be. It may be golfing, it may be fishing, it may be traveling, it may be going to the lake, whatever it is. But don't let it become your God. You see, leisure is a wonderful blessing but it was never intended to be the main thing. It's to be a break. It's to give us recreation. In fact, that's what the word recreate, recre, recreate means. It means to recreate our energies by having a change of pace, by doing something different, by relaxing. But the Bible never intended for us to do it all the time. There's a time to play, but there's also a time to work. And so balance leisure and work. Know when to take off, know how to have a good time, know how to relax, but then recognize after that there's work to be done and we want to do our best. Secondly, not just leisure and work need to be balanced, family and work. I realize that I'm talking to many young families here, men especially, listen to me. I appreciate men who've got an aggressive attitude 
who want to do their best, who are hard workers, but don't ever let work become your God with a little g. I've listed for you here a book. You can find it still on the bookshelf sometime, maybe in your church library. It was written by a dear friend of mine. He was my teacher when I was in seminary. Uh, He was a Christian psychologist. His name was Dr. Wayne Oates. Wayne Oates had written more volumes of any professor that I studied under by far. At the end of his life, he had actually been the author of over 40 books, outstanding books, well-respected books academically. But the last book that he wrote was a very transparent book, and he gave it the title, Confessions of a Workaholic. And he acknowledged his own testimony that as a professor and with an earned doctor's degree and one who was called upon to speak and to write, that oftentimes he had neglected his own family at the expense of work. And he said, though he had counseled people who were addicted to alcohol and addicted to drugs and addicted to pornography, one day it hit him. He was addicted to work. And he asked God to forgive him, and he wrote this book, a very intriguing book. Now, what I'm saying to you is, sometimes we men excuse ourselves when we say, well, I'm doing it for my family. Who are you kidding? You're doing it for your own ego much of the time. You want to climb the ladder. You get a promotion. You get more money. It's a sense of self-satisfaction. You're praised more than anybody in the office. You work harder than anybody. If you want to know if you're a workaholic, if you brag about the fact you're the first one there and the last one to leave, you get more work done than anybody else, nobody else can do as much as you can do, you're a borderline workaholic. Now, hear me. I want to help you. I'm not fussing at you. I just want you to see. When we can see at times that a good thing, drive, ambition, determination, can degenerate till it becomes a God. And we find ourselves overcome by workaholism. And today, many of our children are suffering from that. Dads, moms, listen to me carefully. Our children don't spell love, L-O-V-E. Our children spell love, T-I-M. And when they look back on life, they're going to remember whether dad and mom had time for them, time to listen to them, time to play with them, time to take them places. I don't mean they become our obsession, but their children all over Shelby County starving for a dad or a mom who would just spend time. Now, the dad works hard, the mom works hard, they make a good living, they see that they're properly clothed and educated and fed, but emotionally, they're starving to death. Don't do that. Balance between leisure and work, family and work, and yeah, worship and work. You hear people say every once in a while, Sunday's the only day I have off, so I can't go to church. That's a foolish person, dear friend. God did not make you where you could live and exist without worship. And thereby, I need to keep a balance in my work and my worship so that I make time to go to work 
but also make time for worship. The Thessalonians needed to make time to go to work. For many Americans today, we need to make time to go to worship, to bow in God's presence and thank Him for all of His blessings. All of this is to say, God made every one of us capable of working, but it never intended for work to become our God. Will you bow together with me for just a moment? And with our heads bowed and eyes closed, we thank the Lord for the work Christ did for us at the cross that we might be saved. But if you're here today and you've never accepted what he did, the finished work on the cross for your salvation right here, this Liberty weekend, the miracle of salvation could take place in your life at the First Baptist Church of Pelham. If you're already a Christian, you'd say, but Charles, I need to maintain balance in my life badly. Or I need to improve my attitude toward work. Or I need to try to find the right job, God's will, my own aptitudes. These things, you spend time in prayer as we pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the practical dimension of 2 Thessalonians and help us, O oh Lord, to reach out more and more to people who are in real need, but help us not to develop a society that's looking for a free hand, handout every time they turn around. Help us to maintain balance in what we do. We want to honor you with all of our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand together with us? And as we stand, Donna's going to lead us in our hymn. I'll meet you right here as you make the decision. God lays upon you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.